You're listening to Writers on Writing, a show about the art, craft, and business of writing. I'm Barbara DeMarco Barrett. Today, my guest is Kathleen Schmidt, the founder and CEO of Kathleen Schmidt Public Relations. Schmidt is a well-respected voice in book publishing with in-depth experience in all aspects of the industry, including as a publicist, literary agent, acquisitions editor, and ghostwriter. To date, she has worked on 50 New York Times bestsellers, and her clients have appeared in top-tier national print, broadcast, and radio outlets, such as The Today Show, Good Morning America, Vogue, Elle, Financial Times, Vanity Fair, GQ, and Sirius XM. Kathleen writes the publishing confidential substack. On the show, we talked about small presses versus corporate publishers, trends in fiction, blurbs, brands, how books sell, why Substack is a good platform for writers, and more. And now for my talk with Kathleen Schmidt. Kathleen, I'm so happy to talk with you. You have had so many um, roles in the publishing industry, and your extended bio will be um, up on on the website for, for people to read Um, But for now, maybe talk about sort of how you um, came to be where you're at with publishing and what you do. First of all, thank you for having me on. Um, I appreciate it. Uh, I'm happy to be here. I started my publishing career um, in the late 90s um, as a publicity assistant for a really small independent publisher in New Jersey. Uh, I didn't necessarily feel like I was ready to work in New York City yet. I was fresh out of college. So I started working um, there and my first big break came when the publisher acquired American rights, North American rights to a scrapbook by the Spice Girls. So, that was my first really big project. And, you know, I was just like this little kid out of college and um, I got quoted in USA Today and arranged their book signing at B. Dalton in New York City and all that. And from that, I started getting calls from other publishers. Uh, So I ended up doing about an eight month stint at Pocket Books at Simon & Schuster. Um, and then got recruited by uh, Dutton and Plume at Penguin, which was just Penguin at the time. Um, So I left and I went there and I stayed there for eight years. Uh, And I started as a publicist and I left as publicity director to go to Simon & Schuster and be the vice president of publicity for Atria Books. Um, I stayed there for about four years, launched books like The Secret, worked with Jody Picot, um, a lot of other big authors uh, and celebrities. And then I, I decided my children were little at the time, so I decided to go out on my own for a little while. And 
looking back now, I wasn't really ready to do that, but I I did it for about three years and then went back in-house at Perseus Books uh, to be a publicity director at Weinstein Books, then VP of Marketing and Publicity at Running Press, then back to New- in, in Philly and then back to New York to be associate publisher <laughs> of Rodale, <laughs> where that was a big switch for me because it hadn't, I was not doing any PR um, and I was doing more things on the sales and marketing end. So it really was a different kind of education for me, which was helpful. Um, it didn't really fit what I wanted to do though. So I didn't stay there very long. And I left in about six months after I started to become a literary agent um, and I did that for a couple of years. And that was super eye-opening to me because I had always known about author advances, but I only knew about them from the perspective of publishers who paid a lot of money for certain books and who would come to me as a publicity director and say, we spent a lot of money on this book. We paid X amount of dollars. Things need to happen. So when I started agenting, I realized how little advances are. Um, and, you know, I, I mean, one project I sold was for probably $25,000 advance. So you think about that and you think about the fact that publishers usually pay in thirds and you, as an agent, you're only getting 15% of every third. That's not a lot of money. Um, so it didn't really seem viable to me after a couple of years. It, it takes a long time and a lot of hard work to make it as an agent. I have a lot of respect for agents for that reason. It it just really, you have to, it's a grind. You have to be out there doing it constantly. Um, it took a little time off after that to figure out what exactly I wanted to do because I found myself at a crossroads thinking maybe I didn't want to stay in publishing. Um, but it turned out I kind of did. So I started as the publicity director at Skyhorse Publishing in 2019. And I stayed there until last September. And during that time, um, in in March 2022, I decided to go for my MBA. Um, and that's been great. I love it. Um, I'm down to my last three classes and I graduate next May and it's been really helpful in terms of thinking about business differently, all kinds of businesses, but especially book publishing. Um, and it helped me get to where I am now, which is operating my own PR marketing and consulting firm, um, KMS PR. Uh, where I work with authors, organizations, independent publishers on various different projects. So it could be just a straight publicity project um, where I'm, I'm doing a PR campaign for an author. It could be consulting on, you know, branding or marketing, um, or it could be you know, uh, working for an organization and helping them with their messaging and helping them with their spokespeople uh, and things like that. So it's given me the opportunity to to also write my Substack, Publishing Confidential, 
which I launched in March. Um, and I honestly thought that nobody would read it. <laughs> and it turns out that I've really underestimated the hunger for transparency in the book publishing industry. And um, it's grown so fast and I'm really grateful for that. Wow, that's a lot. Well, you know, you, um, especially going for an MBA and coming from publishing and having um, that view into it, maybe you can tell me why. <laughs> It is it seems so broken to me. Publishing seems broken. And one of the things I've been noticing is, um, you know, summer is not a time for writers to approach agents, for instance, because everybody's down. And I think, you know, what successful businesses sort of go on hiatus for like two or three months? Um, I mean, is that just from the old days when, you know, everything was busy and you had to take time off. I mean, what is that? I think that's a leftover perception um, because no one I know in the industry was away for the whole summer. Um, you know, that's a very fancy way of looking at publishing. And granted, you know, when I first got into it in the late 90s, it sort of was that way um, because there were still you know, assistants who had trust funds and all that. It's changed so much since then. Um, you know, I, I don't think people realize just how many working class people work in book publishing. And if you're working class, like myself, you cannot take uh, an entire summer off. So I think what really happens during the summer with agents is they need to, they take the time where it's a like slightly, maybe slightly slower in acquisitions in publishing houses to catch up on what's already in their inboxes. So I don't think it's, it's so much that they're off for the summer. I think they're catching up on queries and that's why it's harder to submit. But on the other end of it, I know that publishers are being even more selective now about acquisitions. And so that's tough too for them. But, you know, that I would say the quietest two weeks in publishing are probably the two weeks right before Labor Day, because last week was super quiet. And on Tuesday, it was like everybody in the world of publishing had woken up and emailed me. <laughs> like, so I think those two weeks are are specifically really quiet. The week of 4th of July is usually really quiet. Otherwise, it's a really busy time um, getting ready for fall books. So so author or authors-to-be writers don't need to um, scale back during the summer because it's like, oh, I'm going to wait until the fall to submit. Um, I, I, I think, you know, they need to look at where they're submitting to and if that person, you know, what their what their deal is, basically, if they're closed to submissions for a little while, um, you could still query during the summer. If somebody's open to submissions, I say query away. Um, you know, the acquisition process, though, can be a little slower during the summer um, just because if it's something where there's a line of approvals needed 
the higher up it has to go, the more likely it is someone is on vacation. Sure. Yeah. Well, what about then um, approaching agents? I mean, you've been an agent and you've seen sort of the the acquisition um, process from every angle. So, I mean, with queries, you know, there are comps. Now, writers, you know, mm. it's like if you submit a query without comps, it's like, no, you don't do that, apparently. Um, right. But then it's confusing the sort of comps you can use, like they should only be a couple years old. And, you know, you can use books or books and TV or books, movies, and whatever combination. I mean, you know, and then queries, like how is an agent reading a query? You know, are you paying attention to the bio? Are you paying attention to that graph that's describing the project? Are you paying attention to um, the style of writing? Are you paying most attention to the comps? Are you paying most attention to the first paragraph that says, I'm writing to you because such and such person who's your client referred me? I can only speak for how I read queries. So sure. I, you know, I needed to be drawn in right away. Um, so the query letter is super important. It's to me as a, you know, as a trained publicist, uh, you know, I, I was taught how to write a pitch. So that comes very naturally to me, but it does not come very naturally to most writers is what I've come to realize. <laughs> and um, so, you know, the pitch has to be really good and you have to draw someone in right in that first paragraph. Then I would say, you know, the next most important thing is the overview of your book. Um, if that's not if that's not polished and good, it doesn't have to be perfect, but it has to be as close to perfect as you can get it because you only get one shot at submissions. So that has to be really, really strong. Um, you know, the the idea is, is really important. Uh, and I'm speaking from a nonfiction perspective. Um, you know, if if it's something that I would read and I would think to myself, well, you know, this has been done already and it's too close to something else that's been done, it would be a pass. Um, so you really do have to know what your comp titles are and they should be within the past five years. Um, they shouldn't be, you know, a pie in the sky bestsellers. Um, because, you know, no, it, those are almost flukes sometimes. Um, the other thing is, and and I think writers sometimes get worried about this, just because there's a comp title doesn't mean that your idea for your book has been done already. The comp title tells you that there is something similar, not exactly the same, that has performed in the marketplace pretty well. And it gives the publisher and the agent something to compare it to. So if you're a person who is going to say, well, there's nothing like my book, I don't have any comp titles, that's worrisome. Because every single book that somebody wants to publish 
has been done in some way or another before, you know, and even the writing style in, in fiction, um, I just finished reading Emma Klein's book, um, The Guest. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. and it reminded me so much of the book, uh, My Year of Rest and Relaxation. It wasn't the same. It just reminded me of it. And I thought to myself, that book had to be a comp title for this book because it's it, it's so similar with character and kind of what goes on um you know the age range of the main character the sort of I want to disappear from myself kind of a thing um and that's really what you're looking for in a comp title so if it's fiction you're looking for something in the same I would say it's in the same spirit as your book same thing with nonfiction. same spirit but also kind of covering that topic, but not comprehensively. Mm-hmm. So I'll give you an example. Um, I was thinking, you know, towards uh, the end of last year, I had an idea for a book. It was a book about public apologies. Um, I thought this is a good topic. You know, we are always looking at people apologizing publicly. And then I saw that a book was coming out. I think the name of it is, um, sorry, sorry, or something like that. And it's by, you know, two women who have a website that track public apologies. And I scrapped the, I completely scrapped the idea. I had started working on a proposal and everything. And I was like, forget it because it's done. So there's no reason, no one's going to read that twice. Hmm. Um, On the flip side, you know, if you're thinking about doing a self-improvement book, there are, millions of them that you can look at and say, this is in the same spirit as mine, but this is how mine is different. Mm-hmm. And that's really important. And it's the same for fiction too. What about the slush pile? I mean, do agents, did you as an agent um, um, look at the slush pile and ever acquire anything from it? Are referrals like the most important thing? Are MFAs, you know, in the bio really important? Um, people will argue with me on this, but an MFA does not mean necessarily that you're, you're a publishable writer or that your idea is viable in the marketplace. Um, you're either a good writer or not. Um, and an MFA can train you to become a better writer, but it doesn't guarantee that you'll get published. And MFA is great if you want to teach writing classes. Um, But the way I looked at my inbox was, you know, my inbox was one big slush pile. Um, (laughs) You know, referral, I really didn't get referrals um, because I didn't have a track record of being an agent. So people pitched me, you know, sent me queries cold. And it was all in the the query letter, honestly. Um, and, you know, the things that I didn't take on were things that I wasn't interested in or that I felt like weren't that strong. You know, there were quite a few romance um, books uh, sent to me, but I'm a, I'm a heavy romance reader. And 
I know what a good romance needs. So I would read maybe the first 25 pages quickly. And if it, it either it did or did not hit the mark. And a lot of them didn't. So that would be a no for me. Um, but then there are things, you know, that are super interesting. There are book concepts that are, you know, you have not heard about before. Um, and you're, you're intrigued. Um, so it's, you know, I know some agents definitely do look at their slush pile because there could be a great discovery in there. Um, some editorial assistants are tasked with that at publishers. I think, you know, it is a relationship business. So I think if you are being referred to someone, yes, you have a better shot at, you know, your query getting looked at, but it's not necessarily a must have. Um, a student sent me an article this morning, so I'm guessing it came out today in the, in the Wall Street Journal about MBAs and how there's more writers with MBAs or law degrees or, you know, um, who are doctors, et cetera, than MFA. Um, I didn't see that, but it totally makes sense to me. Um, one thing that I can say for certain is that doing this MBA program has sharpened my writing skills a great deal because it's very rigorous and the way I've been doing it is um, every class is 10 weeks long and you only got about a week in between classes. So I've been going constantly since March of 2022. Um, there have been, there's no like summer break. There, there are no semesters. It's just on and on and on. And the workload is such that you are tasked with doing writing, um, you know, either one paper, one really long paper a week, maybe two short papers. This last class I just finished up, um, it was really, there were two papers, but very heavy on PowerPoint. And with that, you know, you have to write speaker's notes and then you have to narrate the PowerPoint. And so your writing has to be really good because MBA professors are not ones to like flowery language. Um, so that, that makes sense to me because your writing has to be very succinct and it has to be really clean. It has to be, you know, at a level where maybe if you weren't in a program like that, you wouldn't, you know, you're getting graded on it. So, you know, you're getting, you're getting graded on your, on your business writing. Um, so I could see a lot of like nonfiction coming out of that. Um, I can't really speak to, you know, how many people write fiction from that, but it wouldn't surprise me in, in the least if people who went for, you know, law degrees and MBAs were writing more fiction. Hmm. What about um, reviews and, and, um, word of mouth, book clubs. I mean, what what sells books? Do you think? I mean, is it a combination of things? Because I mean, I have you know, so many writers I know um, are either get depressed because they're not getting reviewed in certain places, or they're ecstatic because they've gotten reviewed in the New York Times or Publishers Weekly or wherever. Um, but what in all that? do you think matters the most in terms of selling books? I think what matters the most is word of mouth. 
Um, you know, I'm really honest about that. I, I mean, if, if somebody knew the formula that mm-hmm. absolutely worked, uh, to make a book sell, uh, that person would be very rich. Um, you know, I, I do think it is a combination of things because in order to generate word of mouth, people have to know that a book exists. So a, a few things can happen. Um, reviews have their place in the world. Um, they're valuable for certain reasons. I don't really feel like they're the thing that consumers, the the average consumer looks at to buy a book or that makes them buy a book. Um, you know, I think it definitely can help, but I know the way I find out about books is either from social media or I'm talking to someone and they uh, they say, you know, oh, have you read such and such? And then they tell me about it. Or I browse a bookstore and I'm drawn in by a cover and then drawn in by the jacket copy. Um, so, you know, reviews, I, I think book critics have a really tough job because they have to choose out of a lot of different books they might want to cover. And they have to whittle it down to what they have space for, which makes it incredibly difficult to get a lot of books covered. So it can be a piece of the puzzle. Is it 100% necessary to have reviews in order for your book to sell? No. Um, Places like Publishers Weekly or Kirkus or Library Journal or Booklist, it's never guaranteed that the trades will cover your book. Uh, I think what writers need to know about that is that those places are not consumer facing, they're industry facing. So they also have a place in, in the ecosystem, but it's much different because, you know, the trade reviews are really for the industry. They're for booksellers or for librarians. I mean, if you don't get a trade review, is it the end of the world? No, it's not. Um, Because again, you know, trades get so many advanced copies of books that they can't possibly cover them all. Um, I think podcasts are still emerging as a way for authors to, you know, speak directly to their audiences because there are so many niches in podcasts. I think um, Substack is a huge marketing tool that's being underused by a lot of authors um, or not used at all. the thing that people have to remember is that with social media, you're renting your audience. And with something like Substack, you own your audience, you have those email addresses. So, you know, if if somebody has that platform and they have a strong subscriber base, then as a, you know, if I'm a publisher, I'm saying, well, that's, that's pretty valuable. Um, whereas, you know, if you come to me and say, I have a hundred thousand followers on Twitter. I'm going to, you know, where Twitter is right now, I'm going to say that's great, but it's not going to sell any books because it's who's going to see what you, what you post there. The algorithm is very messed up. Um, There are still, you know, there, there are book clubs, but the celebrity book clubs uh, look at manuscripts probably six to nine months prior to publication. Sometimes it's a year before publication. So that's really something that an editor and an agent 
and and the author need to talk about. It comes less, I think, from publicists and more from that area. And book clubs for regular people, um, they're a little tough to market to. I mean, you know, there are ways to do it, but I feel like it, you know, whoever, and I've been saying this for years, whoever comes up with a database of every book club in this country with a contact for each of them will be very wealthy because every publisher will want it. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that's something libraries I feel are still valuable. Um, they'll always be valuable as long as they exist. Um, and, you know, I, I feel like the landscape is constantly changing. It's so fluid and no one truly knows, you know, what the next big book is going to be. Sometimes publishers put their marketing muscle behind some fiction books that make it impossible for reviewers to ignore. So, mm-hmm. you know, you could look at, at you know, something like um, Normal People, right? And her subsequent books, They're, those books are heavily marketed and it's hard for people to ignore them. And that's what happens sometimes in, in, at imprints and at publishers, they allocate a lot of marketing dollars to a particular title that they really want to work because they want to keep the author in house instead of having them look for another publisher. So you'll see that sometimes. And it is frustrating because there are other books that deserve that money. Um, but that's that's the way it works sometimes. So, you know, earlier you talked about the large advances. So um, the books that are getting the large advances tend to have the most publicity money um, given to them. I mean, is that how it all works? We're going to give this one a huge advance and now we're going to make sure it's out there. Yes, pretty much. Um, I wish that weren't the case, but it usually is the case unless the book, you know, the book does not deliver. So there have been cases where, um, you know, a publisher acquires a book for a lot of money, the final manuscript comes in and it's, it's not great. So then you're kind of like, what do I do with this? Um, you might pull back a little bit from the marketing and publicity budget. Um, or you might go full throttle and say, look, I just need people to buy this. Sometimes if it's a huge advance, like a seven figure advance or high six figure and the book bombs, that's a write-off for a publisher. Um, so it goes as a loss on their balance sheet. And, you know, it's, uh, you know, they kind of like wipe their hands of it that let's pretend this never happened kind of a thing. Um, I've seen that happen too. <laughs> um, but generally speaking, the larger the advance, the larger the marketing budget and publicity budget. Yeah. Before we bring Kathleen back on, a few words about Patreon. Consider visiting our Patreon page at patreon.com slash writers on writing. There are perks for patrons. And a few dollars a month goes far in helping us to continue bringing the show to you. You can also help the show by buying your books at bookshop.org slash shop slash writers on writing, where you will find books by authors who've been on the show as well as other books we like. 
And now, Kathleen Schmidt. So, you know, I just did an article for the Authors Guild Bulletin on self-publishing. Um, and I talked to quite a few authors who um, prefer it, which, you know, seems to be different from how it used to be. And I'm curious about that. I mean, the ones who are successful are doing, you know, a ton of marketing and they're making sure they have the best covers and and all of that. Um, what do you think? I mean, do you see do you see um, that sort of gaining and traditional publishing um, kind of losing in as we go on? I mean, what do you think is in store? I think it depends on the genre because romance, for instance, has a lot of authors that self-publish and they're very successful doing it. And I read a lot of those authors and they're making more money than they would make at a traditional publishing house. So why would they go there? And why would they pay an agent 15% when they're doing it all their own? You know, they hire someone to do great cover designs for them. They have an edit, you know, they pay an editor. I mean, they put together basically their whole staff. So it's their own little publishing machine. Um, you know, the same thing goes for thrillers or mystery. That's another popular genre within self-publishing. So it really depends on what the genre is. But I would say for those two genres, yeah, I mean, it's completely legitimized. You don't need a traditional publisher in, in those cases necessarily. Also because it's not that hard to find communities for either of those genres online. Um, and that's how I find out about my romance books that I read. Um, all of those self-published romance authors are connected to one another and they all promote each other's work. So it's really a network of, you know, people promoting each other. Um, it, you know, it's a lot of, uh, you know, them publishing on Amazon's platform and, you know, you'll see some self-published authors reach the number one on the Kindle bestseller list because there might be a day that they, you know, they offer the book for $1.99 or something like that. And that's really the thing. I mean, the way I can see self-publishing, you know, really taking a bite out of traditional publishing is the price point. Mm -hmm. um, you know, there, there, there just is less overhead when you're talking about publishing straight to Kindle and, you know, maybe doing a limited amount of print editions and it makes it financially feasible for these authors to do it. So instead of say, you know, paying $28 for a hardcover or 18 to $20 for a trade paperback, um, I'm paying nothing because a lot of these authors are on Kindle Unlimited and that goes right into my membership. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I was just at BoucherCon down in San Diego um, this past weekend. And for those who aren't familiar with BoucherCon, it's sort of the largest uh, mystery crime reader and writer conference with a couple thousand people and, and um, so many authors and so many um, self-published authors. But I was really thinking about like what you were talking about support. You know, it's like there's so much support um, in the mystery community 
for authors. And um, I mean, there's, you know, so many groups and conferences. And then, you know, same for romance, literary fiction. It's like, where is the support for literary fiction writers? Um, I, I imagine there's support for science fiction and fantasy as well. Mm -hmm. But literary fiction, is this why literary fiction is like the least popular genre? I mean, I love literary fiction. So, I mean, I, I read widely, um, but, you know, I'm, I was just puzzling over that this weekend. It's like, huh, okay, support, you know, writers, authors need that to, to grow and to sell their books. It's true. And that's a very good question because, you know, before Twitter became a disaster, uh, that's where the support was. Um, for literary authors, I feel it was very much on Twitter. You know, there's a big writer community on there. Um, it's so fractured now that I really do wonder how literary writers are connecting with each other. I mean, it, it can be very clicky. Um, you know, there's no convention for them, though. And there's no, you know, there's no official gathering. It, it, there's no literary fiction convention. I can't even imagine what that would look like, honestly. But, you know, I think um, the support really comes from them, you know, networking in person um, or, you know, maybe writers groups um, and things like that uh, because it's tough. Um, and I know, you know, writing is a very isolating, um, you know, choice uh, in career and it can be hard. Um, but the people I've met who write literary fiction, you know, I've met at like industry events or, you know, someone's having a little book party or, or something like that. So it's a little harder, I think these days for literary fiction authors to connect with people. And, you know, truth be told, um, a lot of them aren't, you know, they don't want to be on Twitter. They don't want to, they don't want to spend time, you know, posting on social media. So that's a whole other, you know, that's a whole other can of worms. But, you know, and sometimes I think there, you know, there seems to be community building on Substack for mm -hmm. literary fiction writers. So I would say that's a viable re replacement for, for Twitter. Um, as far as connecting with people, but yeah, it's difficult. It's difficult. I mean, there's book festivals. Uh, we have here in California, we have the um, Los Angeles Times Festival of Books, yep. which is, you know, 150,000 people over a weekend. And I know there's the Miami Book Fair and there's a yep. few in there, but yeah, like what would a convention look like with literary fiction writers, right? I mean, it's, yeah. there is nothing like that. And, you know, Maybe there should be. Maybe there, <laughs> you know. I mean, it's it's kind of sad because as much as I disliked working Book Expo, I also miss it mm -hmm. for that reason. You know, that was a place where you saw everybody and you caught up and you heard about new books and it was all in one place. And there really is no substitute for that. Yeah, it's not completely gone now because since COVID. Yes, completely gone. I kind of wish it wasn't, um, you know, the last one I went to was Chicago in 2016, um, had a great time, 
And, you know, we all complained about it in book publishing. Nobody liked working the floor. It's exhausting. But at the same time, you know, it's like you don't know what you had until it's gone. Mm -hmm. And I know Publishers Weekly, you know, try, you know, is trying to do something in the digital space with their book show. And they had it hybrid this year, which was fine, but it's still not quite the same. Not quite there. What about AWP? Is that a a good place for literary writers, all writers, um, or is it mostly just college and university based? I've heard very mixed things about it. Mm -hmm. Um, I've heard, you know, authors have gone and they really didn't get anything out of it. So they don't go the next year. Um, and then, you know, I've heard stories where, you know, people make great connections there. So I think it's up to the individual writer. Um, you know, I've always been interested in doing and being on a panel there or speaking there just to see what it's like. Um, but I also think, you know, being a writer it is difficult in that, you know, you, you're, you're competing against other writers. So it gets awkward sometimes <laughs> because you want to support each other. But at the same time, I think there's also that whole, you know, there's a toxicity to it where people get uber competitive and possessive and stuff like that. So there, there are a lot of different things happening. Hmm. Let's talk about blurbs. I know you have a substack on blurbs that I that I think everybody should read, but I just want to talk for a minute about blurbs because, you know, I I receive a lot of pitches for the show for, you know, mm-hmm. from publicists, and I can't tell you how many times I see the word the words like um riveting, compelling, um <laughs> another one that astonishing, but there's another one that just propulsive, right? I mean, that is in every, every like letter at this point. And I mean, they do, it does nothing for me. I mean, I like it when there's a little personal note, you know, from someone, not that I know all the publicists, but when it's just more, more personal and there's not just like a list of, of, you know, these, these adjectives. I mean, what do blurbs do for um, books? I mean, you know, I mean, I personally know that friends will blurb friends' books without mm-hmm. reading the book because they're mm-hmm. friends. But are readers looking at blurbs? Um, are, are blurbs helpful to readers? So that was probably one of my most controversial <laughs> substacks because I got so much. There's so many. There's no middle. Either people believe that readers care about them or people are kind of like, no, they don't care about them. And the average reader does not care about them. I cannot emphasize that enough. (laughs) Um, You know, it is really, if you're an astute reader um, and, you know, and a writer yourself, you're not the average reader. Mm-hmm. you're you're within the industry and you're looking for you're looking for that because you want to see who gave blurbs um for me personally it, i don't even look at them and a good example is i i am reading i'm currently reading stone cold fox um the author's name escapes me right now and you know i bought it because i like the cover and i like the description and I was sitting in bed the other night. I was like, hmm, I wonder who blurbed this book. And I turned it over. There were six blurbs on it. 
I knew not one author who, who blurbed it. What, what does that matter to me? Mm-hmm. It doesn't, um, you know, and I think publishers sometimes make the mistake of hyping up the blurbs too much and skimping on the jacket copy. And they shouldn't do that mm-hmm. because the two, mo- the two most important things for a book, if you're a consumer are the cover and the description. Mm-hmm. And if you go on Amazon and, you know, I, their interface is a whole other story and discoverability on there is awful. But if you, you look at a particular book's page and you have to keep scrolling past all of these huge graphics of quotes, it's like, just give me the description. (laughs) I don't want to scroll all of, you know, where is it? Um, So I don't, I, I think too much emphasis is placed on them and someone, you know, Two people commented on that Substack and said that if there are no blurbs on on the book jacket, that they automatically feel that it's a mediocre book. And I was like, how would you even know that, mm-hmm. you know, without reading the jacket copy? Because some books don't have blurbs. And the point I really made in that Substack was that, you know, non-white authors have a particularly hard time um, soliciting for blurbs. So you can't just walk away from a book that doesn't have blurbs and and assume it's a mediocre book. Mm -hmm. Um, There could be a million reasons why there are no blurbs on it. And it doesn't, and you know, the other part of that is what you said before. Some authors have their friends give blurbs and that person doesn't even read the book. So sometimes what happens at publishers is, you know, they want a person to give a blurb and the person will say, just write it for me and I'll prove it or I'll, I'll tell you what to change. And that happens more often than people think it does. Mm-hmm. So it's people have to remember one thing. It's a marketing tactic. Mm-hmm. And you know, sometimes it's all about just valid a writer validating themselves, you know, by having other writers say nice things about their book. So I don't put a lot of stock in them as a, you know, as a publishing person and as a consumer. Hmm. Well, you mentioned jacket copy, and I would think that especially for self-published writers, that would be really important mm-hmm. to because you know, you're writing the jacket copy or you have a publicist um, or a marketing person helping you. But it seems like that would be just so important, more important than, say, a review in the paid publishers weekly, you know, whatever self-published authors pay for. You pay for reviews in publishers weekly, don't you? You if can. You or yeah. they, anyway. they both both um, Publishers Weekly and Kirkus have paid reviews. Um, it doesn't mean it's going to be a positive review, but it, it um, guarantees that you're going to get it. And as a side note, you know, I emphasize this to authors all the time. The only guaranteed media is paid media and paid media is like advertising. Sure. Um, so for self-published authors, yes, the, the copy is super important. And um, you know, with Rome, with the romance self-published authors that I read, um, you know, they're very good at, I mean, they're very good at jacket copy because it's so short and it tells you exactly what you need to know. 
Uh, and it only takes two minutes to read. And that's a wonderful thing. And <laughs> it shouldn't take more than that um, mm-hmm. to read. And, you know, I just read an article today in uh, Entrepreneur Magazine about how um, the importance of book jackets is resurging because of the digital landscape, because of Instagram, because of, you know, different um, platforms that are duplicates of Twitter, um, book talk, you know, stuff like that. So it's, it's super important to get the cover and the description, right. And also, you know, that's your metadata on Amazon. So it's, you know, searchable, Um, and it's, you know, you have to have your keywords in there, um, and that's how you get into their algorithm. So yeah, it's, it's super important. And then book talk is just a big deal lately, right? I mean, it's, or has, I have mixed feelings about it because, um, and, and I've talked to a couple of my peers in the industry about it and they feel this way too. It's starting to feel contrived to me. Um, You know, I, I watched, I watch a couple of different book talkers over the past couple of weeks and I went through their accounts and it was like talking about books on steroids. It was a lot, you know, and it gets to a point where you're scrolling through and you're like, this is, this doesn't feel organic whatsoever. You know, um, I, I had, I had read a post about an author, um, who, you know, got her, you know, whose description of her book, um, on book talk is something like it's Gilmore girls meets charmed or something like that. And it helped make her, you know, TikTok about it, go a bit viral. And then I was like, oh, that's interesting. Let me go check it out. So I did. And I scrolled through all of her videos and it was overload. Um, Granted, you know, she's done a good job. I think she's gotten, you know, quite a few pre-orders out of it, but every single video is, this is Gilmore Girls meets Charmed. Like she says it over and over and over again. And by the time you're looking at the sixth video, I'm thinking, can I see something different now? You know, um, it just gets to be a bit much. And I don't begrudge, you know, book talk. I think it's done wonders for some backlist books, but that's the thing. You know, it it's a lot of it is backlist and not necessarily brand new books coming out. And, you know, you don't know with book talkers, whether they're doing it because they got paid by the publisher um, or they did it organically. And you're not going to really know that because, you know, despite the fact that they're supposed to disclose it, a lot of them don't. Mm-hmm. Um, the other part of book talk that that is kind of, you know, not great is some, you know, some publishers will say to an author, we're going to do a book talk campaign for you. They'll give like 20 book talk accounts. Um, and so the author is seeing all this on paper and they're like, oh, this is fantastic. But then someone like me will go look up all the accounts and see that they have 200 followers, 79 followers. Their videos aren't viewed more than 150 to 200 times. Views are everything on TikTok. Mm-hmm. So you know, it's, I, I always say I will die on the hill of book talk is not the end all for promoting books. <laughs> um, 
Um, you know, on so on Instagram, I've noticed that there um, are a few reviewers who will approach authors um, to review your book, and they want, you know, they had they say that you know they have a lot of followers. They might have you know ten thousand followers. I don't know more than that, and they will charge you for the review. You know, not much, maybe thirty five bucks, fifty bucks plus the book. I mean, what about those? Or you know. Uh, what do you think about them? It's the same as any review. It's just, you know, I think it's not, I don't think it's worthwhile because first of all, you know, in, in my business, they call that pay to play mm-hmm. and um, it's disingenuous. Um, you know, I understand the want um, from authors to do that or the temptation to do it. Um, but you shouldn't have to pay for that. Um, I, and I know books, books, grammars, you know, need to make a living and I respect it and I'm grateful for a lot of them and, and what they do, but you have to think about what value you're getting out of it. And, you know, 35 bucks, you know, for the most part is it's not a risky proposition. So you could test it and if it doesn't work, okay, no skin off your back, but at the same time, why not put that $35 into targeted Facebook advertising and see what happens? Because that's a very like, you know, AB testing kind of a situation. So if you see that a particular ad of yours is performing, you'll stick with it and maybe put more money towards it. And if you see that it's not, you'll go to B, plan B, which is to pivot with, you know, different ad copy or something like that. And you know, if you know the time frame that it's running, you can compare that to what your sales are or what, you know, what maybe what your rank is on Amazon or something like that. But I wouldn't totally discount Facebook. I think it's still viable. Well, I wanted to ask you about that because when I was doing this article and talking to self-published writers, especially, they were talking about ads on Facebook and how that's been really beneficial. Can you say a little bit more about that? How does that work? Um, you know, I think face, you know, Facebook's ad products are very good and, and you have to remember that, um, you know, Meta is the same company that has Instagram. And if you've noticed, you may be talking about a subject and then you go look on your phone and there's an ad for Mm -hmm. a product related to what you just talked about. So think about that in terms of how well they target their audiences on those two platforms. Um, And that is why, you know, Facebook advertising can work well because their algorithm is very targeted. Whereas I don't feel Twitter's is targeted at all. You see the strangest ads on there now. Um, So I have seen authors get a return on their investment on Facebook advertising. Um, And, you know, again, it's low stakes. You could spend 50 bucks and if it's working, you could put more money into it. If it's not, you abandon that and go to something different. Interesting. What about um, branding? I, when I was doing this article again, I talked with one uh, romance writer who said when she sort of branded her herself and her books, she started just doing so well. You know, she came up with a pitch line for, you know, the type of romance novel that she's mm-hmm. writing. 
What about branding? Because there are publishers that brand, right? I mean, they brand themselves. Why aren't authors doing more of that? Well, not a lot of publishers actually do brand themselves because if you asked uh, the average reader who published the book they're reading, they're not going to know. And they don't know imprints at publishers. So the most common one that people know of is Penguin Classics. Mm-hmm. Um, other imprints, they don't really brand. Um, and there are a lot of reasons for that. Um, internal politics get in the way. Uh, everything has to go up to corporate communications. And you know, there's a lot of different red tape. Now, if you're an independent publisher, you have a better shot at branding yourself. And I feel like independent publishers have a lot of freedom to do that. And they, and some of them do do it and do it well. Um, Authors, uh, you know, they have to think about what their brand is and, you know, write down some characteristics of their writing and their personalities and what they want to be known for. Um, You know, the, I read this one romance author, T.L. Swan, and I think the thing with romance authors that they can do is brand their romance series. So if it's book one of three, you know, she has the um, she has a, a trilogy, I think, called the Miles, the Miles Club. And every male character, their last name is Miles. So, you know, the you know, that series of books, you know the characters, you know what order they go in because the author has done a really good job of putting it out there like that. Um, I think, you know, mystery and thriller writers have that same advantage. It's harder for literary fiction writers to brand themselves. You know, if you're not someone like Sally Rooney, um, you know, whose publisher makes bucket hats and tote bags and things like that. And, I, you know, she doesn't really do interviews, so it's not even her being out there. Her publisher is really branding the books, not, and, and her by proxy. But I think it's really hard because a lot of authors don't know what their brand is. Mm-hmm. They, you have to extract it from them because when you, when a lot of people hear the word brand or branding, they kind of are like, you know, no, ew, no, I don't want to be a brand, but everybody has a brand. No matter who you are, you have a brand, nor anybody walking down the street, you have a brand. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my gosh. Well, we have a few minutes left and I wanted to ask you um, about series because you just mentioned, you know, the series that Swan series and mystery writers have series. What do you think are series um, better selling? I mean, do writers who have series do do well? And is that what readers want with, especially with the romance and the mystery um, genres? I think in those two genres, absolutely. Um, we all love us in romance. We all love a standalone, right? Because it's, uh, you know, it's not a, not a huge time commitment where you have to go through book one, two, three, you right. know, um, because romance books are not short either, <laughs> even if you're reading them on Kindle. Um, so I do think that sometimes, you know, romance authors who are very good at it and manipulate their audience to get addicted 
to the characters in the book so that they must have book two right away and must have book three right away. So that's something fascinating to me. And I think mystery writers have that same uh, method and it, you just, it's a hook, you know, you, you need to know what happens next. And I think, um, you know, E.L. James, as much as a lot of people in publishing, you know, kind of look down upon Fifty Shades of Grey, I think she made commercial romance books mm-hmm. explode because, you know, and I've read those books more than once, the hook on the end makes you immediately want that second book. Mm-hmm. What happens next? Okay, they broke up. Do they get back together? You know, um, so I really think, you know, I mean, romance series has have been around a long time. So have mystery series. But I think when when something blows up and becomes commercialized, then you really get more readers into it. And romance is a billion dollar business. Um, and anytime someone writes about the genre, I can tell right away that they don't really know that much about it. Um, but no one should look down upon it because it's what a lot of consumers want, especially with female consumers. Um, and they'll happily spend the money on it because it's escapism. Well, there are men that write romance, aren't aren't there? And do they there write are. <laughs> pseudonyms? There, I think that, yes, I think they do. Um, I am a, a, a not well-known fact about me is that I am a collector of uh, old romance books from like the 50s and 60s who, that were all written by men. Yeah. And the covers and the stories are so misogynistic. It makes me, it cracks me up sometimes. And that was when men, you know, men ruled the profession back mm-hmm. then. Um, I I couldn't name a, a male romance writer right now, which is very sad, but I'm sure there are, and they're writing under, under pseudonyms. And I'm sure there are that, you know, are like, here I am, I'm writing these anyway, you know, I'm writing these and take it or leave it. But I think most consumers of romance look for the female name. Yeah. Interesting. Wow, we this hour has just like vaulted by. This has been so interesting talking with you. Um, I wonder if in closing, if you have any advice or tips for the writers listening that we haven't talked about. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, one one thing that every writer should think about is if you think, think you want to hire a publicist, just have a conversation with someone. Um, A conversation is free. And I think a lot of writers get uh, a little scared because they think that they can't afford anybody, but that's not true. And, you know, I heard someone say a a couple of months ago, oh, you know, um, freelance publicists cost $25,000. And I was like, if I charged everybody $25,000 off the bat, I'd be a very wealthy woman. And so, you know, have the conversation. Many, many of my peers work within people's budgets. You don't have to hire a publicist for the entire campaign. You can talk to them. They can tell you what 
what they can do for you and what could work. But if they're telling you that this is what I do, my flat rate is 15,000, 25,000, it's not the right person for you, but that doesn't mean there's, there's someone else out there that isn't, you know, the right person. Somebody very well could be, and you just have to have the conversation. Do publicists make guarantees? Like, I promise I will get you on, you know, such and such show. No. And I actually had a, had a call with a potential client today um, who is looking for, you know, guarantees. And I had to say more than once, a good publicist is not going to guarantee results for you. They guarantee effort. They guarantee using their relationships. Um, they guarantee communication with you, uh, but they're not going to guarantee reviews. Nobody can do that or media coverage because no one knows, you know, and they kept switching the question around. So what do you think the percentage, what chance <laughs> percentage do I have? And I kept saying, you're asking me the same question a different way. And the answer is still, there's no guarantee. <laughs> <laughs> well, how can people find you? I know you have publishing confidential on Substack. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, and how else? Uh, my email is Kathleen at KMSPR.com. If anyone is interested in uh, my services or getting in touch for a conversation. It's great. Thank you so much, Kathleen. This is thanks just so much. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Thanks to all of you for taking the time to listen and a huge thanks to our Patreon supporters who help make this show possible. I also have a Substack page called Pen on Fire where I talk about writing and include more from authors and agents that didn't make it onto the show. Thank you to Travis Barrett who does our music and sound editing. By the way, if you like the music you hear on the show, you can find an album's worth of typewriter music on Spotify. Search out the artist Just My Type. Travis has other music on there under his own name, Travis Barrett. You can access our archive of shows 25 years worth at writersonwriting.com. If you want to get in touch with us, email writersonwritingpodcast at gmail.com. You can reach Travis Barrett at travisbarrettcreative at gmail.com. Thank you for listening. And in the meantime, remember to stay in the chair. <laughs>